Here is Alex Ross. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's uh, great to be here. Uh, it's one of my favorite bookstores. Uh, I'm actually currently going back and forth between New York and LA and uh, living in, in both places. Uh, and I come in this valley a lot. It's just a totally amazing store. Uh, so I'll just um, introduce Ben. Uh, and yeah, just, I've known Ben for a long time. Uh, we overlapped slightly, I think, when I was in, at the New York Times uh, as their lowliest uh, junior critic in the 1990s. And you, were, you arrived in 96? 96, 96, yeah. Yeah, I, I left in 96. But, uh, but I met you before that, just mm-hmm. sort of circles. <laughs> people who are interested in music and uh, Ben has written uh, three books four now this is the uh, fourth, fourth yeah, yeah. Um, uh, The Jazz Ear was uh, a really amazing uh, series of interviews uh, conversations very wide range of conversations with jazz musicians uh, which went all over the map in terms of genre and has some of the same quality of, of leaping from one kind of music uh, to another that uh, uh, his new book has uh, then a uh, book about John Coltrane uh, and a uh, survey of uh, the 100 greatest jazz recordings or mm-hmm. recordings you need to hear before you die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. yeah. Um, and now um, uh, Every Song Ever, uh, which uh, which is really fantastic. Uh, and I'm not just saying that obligatorily. Uh, it's um, I've read... You know, hundreds and hundreds of books about music, and I've never read one quite like this one. Uh, it's just uh, extraordinary in terms of the breadth of knowledge and uh, curiosity and, and openness that it displays toward really every imaginable uh, kind of music. Uh, and it's just completely exhilarating the way it leaps from one sound to another, one genre to another, uh, there'll be one page where you go from Curtis Mayfield to Morton Feldman, the great uh, American avant-garde composer, to Giao Gilberto, uh, or uh, my, one of my favorite transitions was uh, Beethoven to Big Black. Uh, oh, there we go. All right, sound. Um, and... Uh, and so that's the experience of, of reading it, but it's it's not this kind of completely random uh, series of uh, musical transitions. Uh, ben has devised this fascinating framework uh, for organizing uh, the whole world of music, uh, not by genre, but by uh, characteristics. And well, he'll tell you more about that. But uh, in any case, Ben, welcome. Thank you. And. Um, I also, I just want to, you know, acknowledge the fact that this is sort of, this is a thrill for me to be interviewed by you um, because you are um, a model in, in my field. And you know you're like you're you're a model whose achievement I'll never be able to reach. It was actually that's the best kind of model. Just for for um, uh, clarity and elegance in in talking about uh, like vast corpuses of music. Um, and um, and that's it. I think about you all the time as as I write. And now I teach as well. Now I, I teach young critics, and um, I'm going to be teaching one of your essays to those critics this semester. And um, so, thank you. That's very kind. Shall we move past the mutual flattery? <laughs> no, uh, it's important. <laughs> important to know about um, this man. But uh, but yeah, let, let me start by asking you. What kind of music did you first fall in love with, and then how did you branch out from there? Because I think a, a, this book is really about moving from one genre to another, and, and so could you sort of retrace some of your journey as, as a listener growing up? Sure. I mean, um, uh, pop radio in the 70s, you know, growing up in suburbs north of New York City, and um, uh, a kind, a kind of uh, isolated part of the suburbs. So um, musical culture wasn't that um, available to me. Um, and so 
um, radio became really important, you know, first like AM hits and stuff, and then, you know, um, college radio, and then all of a sudden, oh, um, I was close enough to New York City to go to um, all ages hardcore punk shows. Um, it didn't matter that I was, you know, 14, um, and I could get home, but, you know, like slightly after dinner time, and... Um, that was uh, that was a that was a real world to get involved in as a teenager, mm-hmm. and um, but at some point somebody fed me a Louis Armstrong record, somebody fed me a Miles Davis record, you know, like friends of the family, you might like this kind of thing, and um, certain things really flipped switches, and um, by the time I got to college. I had an opportunity to open the huge um, lockers full of records at the college radio station, and there was like the history of jazz in you know ten thousand LPs or something, and I sort of knew I knew what I had to do, and so that so like the that was actually my first experience was sort of like the you know the situation we're in everybody's in now like uh, total abundance. And what are you going to do with it mm-hmm. once you have it? Um, so, and yeah. and then, uh, but I never, I I always wanted to know about as much as possible, really, um, and uh, and I, I still do. So I, I had a crucial college radio experience uh, right. as well, and uh, it's I feel like it's it was the the kind of point of origin for what I do for for writing about music and that kind of uh, urgency that, that, that we all had in that period to convert <laughs> others to our cause, but was also very important for me, as maybe in your experience as well, was, was being around in this uh, enclosed, dank basement space uh, with people who were very in, in, interested in very different kinds of music mm-hmm. and being sort of exposed to their passion. It's really, I mean, I grew up listening entirely to classical music, and, and that was when I discovered that there, <laughs> there were other kinds of music uh, worth paying attention to, and, and so uh, that was the great kind of mutual relationship that developed, which I just, you know, I still try to do in my own writing and, and respond to in, in others' writing, this sense of you you have to listen to this, that, that, that sort of, uh, you know, fanatical kind of right. uh, urgency. It's important. Yeah. Um, and I guess, I mean, a, a theme of, the, of your book is, you know, how do we preserve that kind of intensity uh, of... You know, focusing on particular kinds of music, and and then being sort of led to to other kinds of music in in this world in which sort of everything is so immediately available all the time. That I mean, you talk in, in the book. I think you, you talk about this paradox of multiplicity and abundance, mm-hmm. uh, but then people can just sort of keep lapsing back to the the familiar and right. and, and really not. Taking advantage at all of, of this of the sort of explosion of possibilities, uh, and so how do we? Well, I guess to talk about the genesis of the book mm-hmm. and, and, and sort of how you came up with this concept, given given the the, the context of sure. you know, the cloud and, and all music, every song ever being being immediately available. Sure. Well, um, we, you, practically whenever I meet somebody or whenever I catch up with a friend that I haven't seen in a long time or something like that um, I will ask at some point what are you listening to and um, and at a certain point I don't know when that was it was maybe 10 or 12 years ago uh, more and more people told me oh well I listen to music through Pandora almost entirely now because it's so easy uh, and I don't I don't really have to do anything you know uh, and and it, it seemed very interesting then that you could put in uh, your favorite, um, you know, you just you look within yourself and you, you, your most sentimental version of yourself, and you say, "Who is my favorite? My real, real favorite?" And so, <clears throat> and so then you you put that into Pandora, and it becomes you know the the me station. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, you many of you probably know that the way Pandora works is they have this thing called the Music Genome Project, um, where um, they um, 
they can, uh, ident- they can, they can separate and, ad- and identify parts of a song into um, all these different uh, descriptors. Um, you know, is it long? Is it short? Uh, is there singing? Is there not? Is the singing rough or is it smooth? Is it a man? Is it a woman? Um, how big is the ensemble? All that kind of thing. And by by filling out those categories, they 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 sort of realize what you're looking for. You know. So if you if you type in um, Jay Z, you're going to get something. If you type in Carol King, you're going to get something. And it'll all be sort of like, and it does its job fairly well. But it's it's all the stuff, you know, it's it's everything that is comparable mm-hmm. sonically right. to to whatever artist you suggest. Doesn't and really it push you to to the big leap. No, and and but you know it can introduce you to new to new things, and that's what people would always say to me. I'm hearing new things. I've hear, I'm hearing things that I've never heard. But essentially, it would, it would all be in the same kind of circle, you know. And uh, I just started noticing this more and more. I, I, I imagine I was talking to people who were like into their 30s a lot of the time when I was asking. This. Okay, so um, and. Uh, so I started noticing that and kind of worrying about it because you know either you know you're gonna you're gonna go down a the comfort zone becomes bottomless and you can you can go down that forever now really forever and not really get bored because they keep on sort of rotating things and making things just a little bit new for you and um, or you can sort of break out of that and explore. And I tried to think, all right, how can, how, what can we do in our listening to be sort of anti-streaming service? Um, how can we think uh, in, in an opposite way from how they want us to think about our musical tastes and what we're capable of as listeners? And at the same time, I started reading old music appreciation books from you know the first half of the 20th century, mm-hmm. the music appreciation movement, you know, it was a really big thing. All racket, virtual something called the music, music appreciation racket. Racket, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the spirit of these books was really positive, you know. I mean, the idea was, if you want to be a relatively educated person about music, or or, or feel that you know how to respond to music, here we're going to help you, um, and. It it it, 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 um, it gave you a canon, really. You know, it gave you it gave you a canon of of classical music almost entirely, and um, but there were you know jazz books as well along those lines, right? Yes, but the kind of I mean, I'm talking like earlier, earlier, yeah. you know, up to the maybe 1930, 40, that kind of thing. Um, like the Aaron Copeland book, What to Listen For in Music, which is a really appealing title. What to Listen For in Music. <laughs> I've had that experience. I'm listening to something new, and I, I'm like, I can't get a handhold onto this thing. What am, uh, what am I listening for? So this book would answer the question, and it would say, here's melody, here's harmony, here's rhythm, and then here's the sonata form, and here's oratorio, and so on. And I started to think about yeah, well, what, you know, if a book like that were written now, how how amazingly different it would have to be, because first of all, you can't just assume that everybody the classical music is the is the thing that everybody ought to know about if they want to be, um, you know, relatively with it listeners. Right. And even all those categories don't really don't apply to new classical music. No one uses sonata form uh, anymore, right, right. with few exceptions. So right. they're, they're, it's all outdated, all those categories. Right, yeah. right. Um, and you'd have to take into account that so-called classical music is, is now just one of many, 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 many choices out there. Everybody knows this. And also, we have access to everything. The list, listeners have power all of a sudden. You know, access is power, and we've got power in our pockets. We've got what seems like everything. The book is called Every Song Ever, and we don't have every song ever. We really don't. You know, there's still, there still are things, plenty of things that were recorded that are not yeah. online or not streamable or not whatever. And then, of course, there's the whole rest of the history of music that was not recorded that obviously we don't have access to. But it, it is so powerful to have that thing with us at all times, and we can use it however we want, whenever, 
Uh, it's like a fantasy of the biggest library you could imagine, you know, which I find really exciting. Mm-hmm. But, like, you can go to sleep in that library. You can wake up in that library. Nobody's going to take your key away. Like, it's yours all the time. So what are you going to do with that privilege? And how can you... What are you going to do in order to get beyond the shelves that are just right in front of you? Mm-hmm. How are you going to get back to the, to the back shelves? Right. So I thought about ways in the... As opposed to the old music appreciation books, this is melody, this is harmony, this is rhythm. I thought about other categories you could use in which that were really listener listen, uh, based in the listening experience, like repetition, loudness, density, uh, um, audio space. You know, um, imagining the, the space of 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 a piece of music. And within each of those chapters, um, pretending genre doesn't exist at all and, and, and talking about examples of music that might be from different uh, centuries, different continents, totally different um, musical traditions, but having a through line of, of an idea which, which is a listening experience. Mm-hmm. Would you want to give us a little flavor in terms of... Uh how this plays out uh, on the page with, uh, and you also brought some some oh, sure. examples to yeah. go along. Um, wh- I'm, um, there's a chapter about slow music and what slow music does for the listener. You know the experience of listening to slow music. What slow music means, what it can mean. So. I chose a lot of different examples from all over the map. And I made a little, a little mix, you know? <laughs> Slow jam, as it were. This doesn't come with the book or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but the book has uh, playlists at the end of the book has playlists each chapter. It's, it's relatively easy to find right. most of the music. All right, uh, let's see if this works.
Okay, so that was uh, <laughs> that was uh, Bruckner's quiz. <laughs> yeah, quiz. That was Bruckner's Mass in F Minor, um, conducted by Sergio Celibadache, who who liked slow tempos and was very philosophical about what tempo to choose um, according to the situation and according to the tempo that sort of had to be played in that time and place. It was, it, it's, it's a slower version of Mass in F minor than many others. Um, and then Sarah Vaughan um, singing Lover Man at like a, 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 a tempo that she um, was great at and really owned and loved and um, was very choosy about which musicians she could do that with. Um, and then one of them is fake, actually. It's not that slow in reality. It's, it's, a, it's a Jackson 5 outtake um, that I slowed down by about a third. Um, and, uh, like, new things came out of this song. I mean, new, just like the song transformed by slowing it down to around 70 beats per minute. Um, oh, and the June 27th mixtape by DJ Screw from, from Houston... Unusual in that he was, you know, well, serve on too, but um, uh, th- there's a link between age, getting older, and preferring slow tempos, you know? Makes sense. But DJ Screw was really young, and, and he was just constitutionally suited to, <laughs> to, 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 to creating music with slow tempos. And then at the end was... was Pete Drake, a steel guitar player, who um, was famous for uh, a talking effect with his steel guitar, like a wah-wah thing, in which he would, and with that, he would play all kinds of songs involving crying and sadness, and 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 um, he used slow tempos for everything, even something like that, a piece called "The Spook" that that uh, was not using the the talking effect. Mm. Um, well, maybe I should just read just a, yeah. sec- a little section from that thing about slowness. Slowness in music can only be appreciated without recourse to the notion of progress. You have to disable your modernity to hear slowly or formulate such a way of listening that anything ancient can also be modern. Deliberate slowness has been a radical exception to a general rule of speed. In general, citizens of developed countries are expected to put on a mild hustle so as to distinguish ourselves from the ignobility of all the slow processes, nature, animals, farming, smelling the air to read the weather patterns. In the 19th century, the initial development of the railroad and photography led to the proliferation of a cliché cribbed from Alexander Pope, the phrase, the annihilation of time and space. You didn't have to run to get somewhere fast, and you didn't have to travel somewhere to behold its image. Since then, speed has been imperative. Hearing music that pretends the passing of time isn't important, that there isn't a more efficient alternative, puts us back in the 1860s. You can hear amazing examples of it in the last hundred years. Sarah Vaughan's Lover Man on the record Swing and Easy, so slow that it seems like a boast, so barren that it's an abandoned continent, which she walks like the only woman alive. Or the Flamingos, I Only Have Eyes for You, or Zippity Doodah by Bobby Socks and the Blue Jeans, or Marvin Gaye's Inner City Blues, or Earth's Descent to the Zenith, or Shostakovich's String Quartet Number 15. These are all in some way acts of resistance, orchestrated protests during an extended period of industry. Is slow music in general a sound of dying? Is that why Leonard Bernstein's last go-round with the Adagio of Mahler's Ninth, released in 1987, was the slowest he conducted? Bernstein wrote that through composing the Ninth Symphony, Mahler saw three kinds of death, his own, the death of tonality, and the death of society, of our Faustian culture. It's astonishing and kind of moving that DJ Screw's advanced version of a slow temperament came out of such a young person. Usually, it emerges from older composers, older performers, those who think and move more slowly. The conductor Sergio Celibadache's versions of Bruckner, the Seventh Symphony, 
or even better, the Benedictus from his Mass and from Bruckner's Mass in F minor, which is what we heard, sound like a screwed version of other conductors' versions of the Benedictus. What is he finding by making the piece move so slowly? Celebrace believed that as music becomes more dense, it should also become slower so that the listener may be able to hear its constituent parts. He also believed that each place and moment for a musical event has its own individual tempo, and that a conductor or musician should determine tempo last upon arrival and final preparation. Music is not a preservable object, he said in a documentary film. If you just understand it, you are not part of it. I believe this is correct to the extent that any statement about music in general can be correct. Um, Just a little more. Slowness can be the speed of taking life in thoroughly without missing the details. It can be the speed of having no other distractions. And it can be the speed of summing up or finding a way to see life in the long view, perhaps all chapters at once, with motion decreasing in order to be understood. Shostakovich's String Quartet No. 15 was completed in 1974, a year before his death. Every movement is marked adagio, and his instruction to musicians was, play the first movement so that flies drop dead in midair, and the audience leaves the hall out of sheer boredom. (laughs) That's a great line. It suggests the movie fantasy of frozen time or of the writer and composer Jonathan Kramer's notion of vertical time in music. A single present stretched out into enormous duration, a potentially infinite now that nonetheless feels like an instant. That's what Kramer said. That's a great line too, a provocation and a metaphor. It describes a perception from a single point within a single piece of music of what has happened thus far, what is happening now, and what will happen later, all at once. And that may sound idealized, but why not enlarge the frame even further? What if there were an experience of listening, perhaps brought on by a certain kind of slowness or a certain quality of phrasing, in which one could experience vertical time, not only within the single piece, but of lots of pieces, all that the listener knows, perhaps, from music's past, present, and future? Great. Um, so when you're assembling these these examples uh, of, mm-hmm. of your various categories, I mean, how did you go about whittling them down? Because I mean, the, the category slowness, you know, so many possible uh, examples could come to mind. Mm-hmm. How, what's, what was the sort of logic behind sort of settling on... On, on know, categories or on individual No, just on, on the, the, the examples for the, for the categories. I, I just started with a list of... I love description. You know, I mean, like if you woke me up in the middle of the night and asked me, why do you do this? You know, why do you do this job? I think I would say because I really like describing. Um, And I think that describing something with a certain vigor can sort of make the essence of that music, at best, can make the essence of that music sort of rise up on the page and all of a sudden it's, it's with you. Um, so I had, a, I had like a short list of pieces of music that I just was really, really wanting to describe mm-hmm. in terms of what they're doing, like what's the musical information coming out of them um, as, the, as the listener understands it. Sound, describe the sound. That's, that's what I'm really talking about. And um, the Sarah Vaughan song was in there. Um, for example, um, the Steve Reich piece for organs was in there in the repetition chapter. The Chic song, Everybody Dance, was in there too, and that, that also went into repetition. So I just, I, I had, uh, I don't know, probably 25 pieces of music that I really wanted to do something with. And I started arranging them into different categories um, and then started finding other ones that could, could connect with them. So sometimes the, the pieces themselves sort of 
led you to devise a category Definitely. that would sort of put a name to yeah. a quality that you couldn't you hadn't sort of pinned down yet. Definitely. Yeah. And and also, I mean, this is an experiment in in um, in an expanded idea of of listening. Um, I'm suggesting a spirit of listening, you know, in which we naturally are interested in hearing more in order to make connections between kinds of music. Um, and these are 20 categories that I came up with, and all of you might have 20 of your own. Um, I am not saying that these 20 are, are the ones. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a suggestion, and it's kind of a, you know, these are all categories also that I think Spotify wouldn't wouldn't be able to sell. You know what I mean? Like, um, I don't think they could really sell um, slowness as a as a genre. Um, and that idea appealed to me. Right. I mean, something that really struck me as I as I read and as I listened, and you know, reading this book, you will really want to. Uh, Hook up a computer and and, uh, and sort of find the uh, examples as Ben goes through them, um, and you're going to feel incredibly cool <laughs> as you do this, <laughs> uh, as you sort of skip from one uh, uh, genre to another. Uh, it's uh, it's it's an amazing uh, cross section uh, from very well known artists uh, to very obscure ones, at least uh, ones who were obscure to me, um, and uh, but what, what struck me was that. Um, you were putting all this music together, but you weren't sort of smushing it together uh, uh, and, and sort of leveling it out uh, and sort of turning it into you know this this kind of interchangeable substance, which can sometimes happen when people try to write about you know all of music together and like those, there are all these books mm-hmm. here on the shelves somewhere, mm-hmm. how music works, what music does to the brain, you know this that, and the other oh, thing, right. and that's and looking at them, I always think like, well, what music? You know, mm-hmm. different kinds of music do really different things to mm-hmm. the brain, uh, and and I and I sort of get irritated when when sort of all those differences are, are smoothed out. Whereas here, in a way, you're actually you're preserving the differences even as you find these common threads. I mean, you respect the individuality. You're not saying that you know, Shostakovich is the same as DJ Screw and you know, all the others. You're just saying there is, there is one thing that they have in common, but it can actually you know, also make you notice all the differences uh, right. as well. And, so, and also to kind of respect I mean, individual personalities, but also genres and and I think there's a really interesting relationship to, to genre in the book because you know you could be in one sense you're sort of obliterating it but also you're opening people up to you know genres that they might not have explored and kind of res- respecting the tradition of each genre if that makes sense it's kind of it's complicated that way I yeah yeah I mean um, it's a cliche now to say that genre doesn't matter mm-hmm. you know we're, we're beyond genre and I don't like genre. Um, and it's true, I don't really like genre. Um, because, but I, I think, but, but I think genre is, is really good for selling. You know? I mean, I, I think that's, that's, its, that's its prime use. I believe in tradition. Um, I think that tradition... Um, Reese can 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 uh, expand or reseed, R E S E E D, a body of music, um, and uh, it's very important for. Well, tradition is practiced by participants, mm-hmm. you know, um, musicians and participants, and genre is practiced by um, spectators or or merchants, right? Um, and so. It makes less and less sense to me, actually, to 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 say to yourself, um, "Well, uh, you know, I I gotta have. I'm I'm the kind of person who really likes R and B. You know, because everything is is getting the music itself is getting much more um, porous and changeable. Um, but also, like, we we have we can do anything we want. We have it all. 
you know, it's not a big deal to go find anything now. I and you know maybe genre is also a holdover from early days when your taste in music was partially shaped by your experiences in in getting it. You know what your local record store had in stock, what your local radio stations played, what was the what was the sort of um, music that was necessary to know in your community or your family or whatever, you know? Um, and now, that much less of that is true. There is still local, there are still local music traditions. I don't mean to say that all has disappeared. It's just less true. Right. So what, what are the spaces that, that we can look for that would promote this kind of listening beyond, you know, reading your book. But, you know, I mean, we had, you know, back when there were record stores, there was still some record stores, especially vinyl stores in this neighborhood, but, you know, for the most part, we've lost that, that kind of space where music was preached uh, in, your, in your face. And so instead of the sort of contemporary, uh, if you like this, you may also like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tone was, that record sucks. You know, you should listen to this one instead. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. must, you must listen to this. You know, or if you think you hate this, you should be loving it, which mm-hmm. is a totally mm-hmm. different kind of algorithm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's very difficult to yeah. quantify. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, how do we hold on to that? Um, that that kind of face to face urgency of sort of pushing people toward music that they don't um, think. Uh, well, from from reading this book, but then but then after that, um, oh, um, community radio, college radio, pirate radio, you know, is is still uh, is still a, a great way to to stumble upon things. Um, uh, dumb luck, um, finding. Um, Music is all around us, you know, more and more so. And um, yeah, I, partially, um, I think you can, um, especially now with Shazam, uh, you can encounter music that you don't recognize, uh, especially if you're if you're in a neighborhood that's not your own, that you're unfamiliar with, um, or another country. Um, interstitial music, something in a movie. Something in an ad. I mean, you know, like there, there are all these places where dumb luck actually still occurs. Right. Um, and I think in in record stores there there was, and, and I'm not saying I, you know, I wish record stores would come back because they, I know they're not going to come back. <laughs> that's okay. We've moved on to something else, and that's also okay. But the idea of the record store was really interesting in terms of what what happened to you when you walked into one of those places. Well, you still can, but not so many. Um, you go physically into the place, and just in, just what you take in when you move your head around, you're probably going to encounter something that you didn't know about. You know. Something will catch your eye. You move toward a part of the store that you hadn't moved toward before, just sort of on impulse, and all of a sudden you're seeing things you had. You know, you move your hands across the stock, you start looking at things, um, you take something out. It's an object. It has words all over it often. Not, you know, when you look on Spotify, it's just title of song, name of album. Maybe if you know artists, you can see a little, you know, picture of the cover. But perhaps, yeah. <laughs> but other, <laughs> than, <clears throat> other than that, nothing. And it's all, of course, in a uniform font and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's not, so there's none of that metadata. Who was the producer? Who's playing on this record? Um, the, the typeface, even on a, on a on a record or a CD, or the design, yeah, the cover photo. Like so many people said that they started listening to minimalism or, or you know all the great jazz artists who recorded for ECM just because the, the covers were, were so cool the sort of spare that minimalist true. photography that too that too it, it committed a quality which which the, the whatever kind of music it was yeah gave you in, in auditory form as well yeah I still believe in talking to people. I still believe in face-to-face recommendation. I still believe in looking at, at you know, going immediately to a record collection in somebody else's house, just to, just to 
just to see what it is. Um, that's a great. That can be a great random sampling yeah. too. In fact, another another example of a random sampling is um, I just thought about this the other day. Is the the National Recording Registry? Do you know mm-hmm. about the the Library of Congress has a thing called the National Recording Registry, and every year since maybe two thousand two, they they add twenty five recordings to it, and they're very judicious, judiciously chosen, and they all the idea is that all these recordings illustrate something about life in America. They're not even all American music. They might be non-American artists that just had some impact here for some reason. And so, and, it's, and the list is presented to you alphabetically online on the Library of Congress website. And it's, it's great looking at that list because everything is good, really good, right. and of great interest. But, you know, it'll be like De La Soul, Eddie Palmieri, Leonton Price, um, uh, you know, Beethoven as performed by a certain string quartet, um, Johnny Cash, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't really matter who you are. When you look at that list, you're going you're gonna to come across something you don't know very well. And if you say to yourself, um, maybe I should go through this list and actually hear this stuff, um, then you can start having a sort of every song ever experience, try, trying to figure out Right, these late Beethoven string quartets, never heard of them, but but they connect some. They can they they connect in a certain way to something that I already know, and so they're about me too. Right, and something else that um, occurs to me that you have a really interesting chapter of the book, which sort of the the subtext for it uh, is the the rise and fall of collecting, uh, mm-hmm. and and how just these days there's not so much cultural capital uh, uh, connected to you know amassing uh, huge amounts of uh, of records and you know what used to be called building a library is now considered hoarding. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. but you talk about you talk about a and, but the theme uh, that, that you devise for that chapter is the, the artist who is infinitely. Collectible. Am I getting this right? Who, who, who sort of, or seemingly, yeah, or sort of activates this, this urge. You know, it's just not the artist who puts out sort of the the three classic albums, but whether it's the the Grateful Dead or you know uh, just certain artists that there's sort of this endless chase uh, after. You know, not the ideal document, but but just the the, ex, the experience of of amassing the sort of total picture piece by piece, which is a very, that's a really interesting kind of unexpected cross section through through genres. But yeah. it's it's a thing. I mean, it's, it's it is you a can thing. Really put your finger on. Musicians whose whose music really is best understood as just like chunks in an ongoing discourse, mm-hmm. you know. And if you follow that thought to its conclusion. Um, you know, there was a period of time when Little Wayne was, uh, you know, making was appearing on lots of other people's songs and making tons of his own albums, and it got to a point where it seemed like the only way to really know Little Wayne was to hear all of it. You know, just knowing three songs or something wouldn't wouldn't do because he 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 was only to be understood in the whole thing, seemingly. Yeah. And the same with the Grateful Dead, and the same with um, Fela, and um, you know, other, art, other people like that. Right. I want to leave time for uh, all your questions, but I have, one, I have one more thing I want to ask you, which is uh, a, little, a little away from the topic of the book, although the, the, the book does sort of connect with this, but you know, so your own relationship with you know, as a critic, uh, you know, very mainstream uh, pop music, which, you know, uh, you know, critics are, are now expected to write about, or really have always been expected to write about. Uh, and then uh, genres or sort of subcultures uh, that, are, that are sort of way off the beaten track. Something that really strikes me about your work is how you're not completely beholden to one uh, or the other, that you sort of move back and forth in a sort of 
uncomplicated way. I mean, you, you don't seem terribly burdened by uh, just a lot of the, the, the debates that happen, you know, between kind of, you know, sort of the, the rockist versus poptimist uh, kind of thing. It's something, it's, it seems kind of uh, beside the point with, with your work, but is, are those issues that you sort of think about and grapple with or prefer to avoid? Or? Well, if I had any kind of training, it really was writing about jazz because mm-hmm. I did that more than writing I, I did more of that than writing about anything else for at least the first 10 years and um, you know one useful way of writing about jazz is really dealing with the music as much as possible you know talking about specifics what's going on in it and um, and also trying to make it interesting but but I, I did start to feel like oh um, actually, this method can be used um, in pop music too, and it, I've, sometimes it, um, I feel a little bit um, perverse doing it that way. Writing about a Rihanna record in terms of the music itself, um, because it's not—it's not done a whole lot. I don't see a whole lot of it, and I understand why. I, and and also. I mean, music is more than, you know, repetition and silence and loud. I mean, I know that. Absolutely. Music is deeply, deeply coded um, with history and politics and struggle and um, all kinds of things. Um, And also reacting... Uh, with and against um, trends and um, you know prevailing sounds and styles and all that um, but if I mean I'm glad that you sense that I'm not overly concerned because I'm not um, with arg- uh, arguments about one style versus another and um, um, Optimism versus rockism, and um, actually, I try to forget about all that. And I also feel that um, somehow, for me, if this works for me anyway. Um, I can be, I, c- I, I can write in a voice that's somehow true to myself when I'm actually dealing with with music, <laughs> with the music, and when I start talking about um, how the song or the record is an act of positioning, cultural positioning, or what is the message. I, I, to me, I start sounding like everybody else. Right. Yeah. Well, I think what really sets this book apart is, ultimately, it is, it's entirely about music uh, and, and just the, the stuff of music. And there's very little biography, uh, political context, uh, social context, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's not dry or, or technical either. It's, it's quite personal and, and poetic in terms of, of how you go about that kind of musical description, but, but it is, it's just all music, and that, that is rare uh, and refreshing. Uh, but uh, let's have some questions from uh, all of you now, if you, if you like. Yep. Um, when you're talking about slowness, a couple of things occurred to me. Yeah. Um, lyric poetry and lyricism and dance. Yeah. As a younger person, you might be really drawn to these qualities because there's a mastering and artfulness in lyric poetry. You actually are discovering truth through a portal almost in the universe. Uh, a kind of you're you're catching something in the lyricism of the poetry that discovers truth and and in in the essence rediscovers music. And lyricism and dance the space-time continuum is being fought because you are suspending gravity and you are also redefining time as a dancer. So this slowness notion, I think, is really attractive to the best minds, to the true artists. I simply, I just, maybe I'm just partial to lyricism. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, these were thoughts that were occurring to me when you were in your exploration. I was wondering if you wanted to, to riff it all on that because I know I'm very attracted slowness. And I find that when things are are brought down to that level that really truly immortal truths spring up. And and artists just dis- display their mastery in ways that speed will allow. 
I don't know if that makes you know you can shoot that down too. Oh, I wouldn't want to shoot any of it down. It's it's I mean it it sounds very right. Everything you just said. I mean, I think that one one aspect of slowness is that it it um, makes you think about life. It makes you think about living. Um, it makes you think about who you are and where you're going to end up, and you know, um, it. Um, sort of reduces you to your essence. You know. Um, that's about all I can manage. So you like slowness, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's also a chapter on speed, so I mean, the book doesn't, (laughs) (laughs) which is very much in praise of speed, Uh, so it's not, the book book isn't, you know, weighted toward. Slowness, it really made me think of, um, and I really liked your samples too, because that too, kind of, there's that equipoise of, of living in this age where you were organized in a thinking in a way that's really interesting. I think that, well, yeah, I think that um, whatever emotion or not necessarily emotion, whatever quality you're trying to express comes out even stronger when you bring the tempo down. The idea of doing something slower than it needs to be is almost threatening, you know? Or sexual. Or sexual. Um, um, in any case, it's very powerful. Yeah. Andrew? Um, I, uh, I'm very nostalgic for uh, some of the earlier experiences you described, you know, being a part of a subgenre, the hard work uh, to actually get a pretty rare right. uh, album, how you would listen to it, the small group you would gather around yourself. You build a whole set of like really excellent personal associations with it, yeah. which to me was pretty much inseparable from my experience of music overall. Um, I'm not I'm not a younger person now who's uh, discovering music for the first time through this you know this huge spigot. Um, but you know, feeling old, kind of old to say this, I, I feel like something must have been lost in the experience of discovering and gathering in the community around us a, a certain, you know, discovery. But my guess is that you hopefully you've discovered something that has replaced or some other mode by which people do assemble these really personal idiosyncratic experiences with music, but not just alone, with their earbuds on, you know. What have you, I mean, have you come across anything that can replace what we all... <sighs> Well, now instead 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 of the the instead of the the in, instead of the search the one by one search you know it takes you six months to find record A, and then 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 you're going to need another six months to find record B. Um, instead of that, now um, we can have everything, um, and it's just a matter of how quickly you can you know download it or or stream it. Um, so it's different. Is it better? I don't know. Is it better? Is it worse? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not really. I don't. I'm not really prepared to answer that. No, no, no. I, th- I just think that it, it works in the. It works differently in in how you think about it and how you experience it. Um, I'm I'm amazed actually by. How much? Well, you know this too from from binge watching. You know, I mean, the way we watch TV is totally changed, and it seems to be very attractive to people. You know, I mean, they like it. They really like it, and they can take in huge amounts of narrative within a, a single day. You know, um, and the same goes with music. You know, um, you can you can really, really, really stuff your head full of the complete works of Fela and, you know, and, and if you, you, you got them all, you got them all. Um, but then maybe the, maybe the positive part of that, if that seems negative to you, um, is that you have the rest of your life to process it. And, um, you, and you, if you if you listen in a cursory way to a whole lot all at once, um, what's most important 
um, you you will remember and you will make a note and you will go back to it and and you can you know so so you've got lots of stuff at the beginning of the process and then there's the whole rest of your life and it's just, just a different one way. thing if you can zero in on on arbitrarily or just by your in your sense of interest on on a particular piece song and obsess over it uh, and tune everything else out. I mean, there's nothing to stop that from happening, and I think that does still happen very much, sure. that, that people uh, seize upon uh, you know, a particular thing and, and just tune out the, uh, the, the abundance uh, Completely. in order to, you know, so th- I think, I mean, I'm skeptical of, of this idea of you know, declining attention spans and, and, and all that, but, but there are, but these technologies can Control shape our behavior in, in ways that we do have to watch out for, and all the economic questions, of course, around well, the other, streaming. The other question that's often associated with that one is <clears throat> the way people listen to music. Um, you know, a lot of kids listen to music just like they have their phone, and they might listen to the song coming out of their phone. You know, the little speaker on their phone—that's good enough. Or um, you know, just the little speakers in the laptop. Lots of kids listen that way. Lots of adults listen that way. Um, whatever. I don't think it really matters. I think these are authentic ways to listen. And um, what's authentic is what's meaningful, and that's what and that's what works. I, um, if I were given a choice, you know, listen to music however you want today for the next two hours, however you want. I mean, yes, I would choose like a. A tube amplifier and all that, because because um, because it it makes you feel really good. And actually, the music sounds better and better as it goes along, and it doesn't burn you out. And you even feel sort of like you know, like you've gone swimming or something. It's also ritualistic. It's ritualistic. That's nice too. Yeah, right. That's nice too. But <clears throat> I'll, I'll pretty much take it anyway, and, and or I can I can I can have a, a great experience. Um, by hearing phone uh, music coming just coming out of my phone, yeah. So my question is: streaming has become so popular. I grew up with like tapes, CDs, you know, records, all that stuff, and even an iPod. You have what you have, and you can listen to it on repeat, right? Over and over and over again. With streaming, it's hard to repeat. It automatically goes on to the next thing, and I don't know. I wonder if you can look into the future a little bit and. and think about what might be next. The streaming annoys me because of that. Because like I I just want to listen to the same thing. I hear it and I feel like to get to know it you need to listen to it four, five, six, ten times sometimes. I'm a classical musician so I listen to things over and over again. But when it just goes from one to the next to the next, you don't get that time to like leave that C D in your car and get to know that piece of music because you've heard it hmm. on repeat over and over again. The intimacy. It's like, if you repeat, just, it just goes to the next thing. And I wonder if you see that as a negative or... Well, I think that the, 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 the platform or the gizmo doing the work for you is generally where we're going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, um, if you look up a song... Um, if you look up the new Beyonce song on YouTube, um, the song will play and it'll finish, and then it'll automatically roll over into the next thing queued up, which is probably associated with that song through various algorithms. Maybe it's another Beyonce song, or maybe it's by somebody, maybe it's by her husband, or you know, whatever. Um, um, The idea is that is that streaming services, YouTube, whatever, they want they want to keep you on the hook. I mean, what's the possible? Just in business terms, what's possible here is that you will get, um, uh, for practical reasons, you will say, "All right, Spotify, I'm with you. I'm going to do the ten dollars a month. You know, I'm not going to think about it. It'll just it'll just go transfer from my." bank account once a month, that's it. I'm never going to think about it again. And, and you will look at Spotify every single day. 
you know, if you like music, you probably will. And then, um, and and that's it. And 50 years later, you're still you're still with them. And so, and and I think the idea is, and I'm not trying to demonize Spotify. This is just this is just business. I think they want to get better and better at at. Um, they, they don't want you to move away from them. And the way they do that is they're just going to keep doing the work for you and figuring out for you. Um, and uh, they're going to be more and more brilliant at it. Um, the You might know, if you have Spotify, you might know about this thing they do now called Discover Weekly, which is if you're a subscriber, um, once a week you will have a new playlist um, that you'll find in your phone. And um, it's incredibly insightful about what you, what you might like. Um, and it's not just, you know, or you listen to the third album by a, a certain performer, then they're going to give you a bit of the fourth album. That's like the baby stuff. The really advanced stuff is, um, oh, so you listen to, you listen to David Bowie um, the day you learned that he died. It will extrapolate from that, and and if you do that, and also you listen to other things that that seems to indicate that you uh, that you have sort of um, obscure tastes, perhaps they will give you uh, something from a record by uh, a David Bowie sideman, a very little known record, you know, and you'll go, how did it know, <laughs> you know. Um, all the time, you'll be saying, "How did it know?" And it's uh, it's very flattering, <laughs> and um, but also it gives back to you. And I like it, and I also don't like it. It gives back to you a version of yourself um, that that basically essentially reduces you to a profile, a type of listener. And what I'm arguing in this book is that music uh, listening is a really creative act. It's not. It's not passive. It's really creative. It's a way that you grow as a person. Um, you know, it's a way to learn pattern recognition and emotion and languages and all kinds of things. And the more you can listen, you can you try to encounter music that you don't know about, that you really and truly don't know about. I think the better the better you are, you know, the better you can be. But I guess I'm just thinking, like, if you don't own it, that's my problem with streaming. Oh. Then you're, like, constantly trying new things, which is great, but I think you can learn new things by listening to the same thing hundreds of times over and over again. And just going deeper and deeper into the yeah. one thing. Yeah, or a handful of things. Like, maybe you know these three records really, really well because those are the three records you've had when you were a kid. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, do we lose the kind of depth? Like, we have breadth, but maybe we lose the depth. Of yes. The yep. That, the answer is yes. I, I think so. I think, I think so. One, uh, one more question, then we have to wrap up. Yep. Well, this is personally very interesting, because today I finally thought I might delete the horde of digital music, which I've amassed on many hard drives. This is the day. And anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that aside... Um, with every song ever, uh, how the concept, not the book, sorry, how has that evolved your role as a cultural critic in music? What is the role of the critic? Yeah, Can you say a little more about that? Question. How has writing the book? No, sorry, just can you say a little bit about oh, the role oh, of the oh. critic in, yeah, in the sort of in total the abundance with the, with the breadth of yeah. music available? That was my question. Oh. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think most uh, works of criticism that are really labored over are partially autobiographies, <laughs> and um, and so this is mine, and um, and um, you know it's 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 partially <clears throat> it's partially been this way for me for a long time even before. Um, iTunes, um, that because I wrote about all kinds of different, all different kinds of music, I was receiving all different kinds of music, and I, and I was able to hear all different kinds. Um, um, the fact that now everybody has everything um, hasn't really changed a whole lot for me personally. Um, 
But um, I do have a sense of now that we're dealing with everything at once in vast quantities of sort of like rolling back the microscope as a critic more and more as much as possible even um, because I feel like that's the only way I can I can deal with it I want to write in a way that will reflect the abundance I want to write I want to write in a way that can um, make these connections I want to be able to continue making the connections and I feel that the only way I can do it is to write um, as if I'm looking at music like all music from a distant planet <laughs> you know um, whereas I think when I began writing about music I was much more invested in looking at something really closely uh, within its own tradition and in relation to what just came what came just before it and what was what is coming right after it um, now I'm more interested in trying to see the whole thing Great. Well, I think that's all the time we have. But uh, thank you so much, Ben. And Thanks for coming. I really everybody. strongly recommend this book. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.